It's been a, a month since we've been in Second Peter. So go ahead and open your Bible if you still remember where that is. Second Peter, towards the back of your Bible, because of Shepherd's Conference and a, a few other things that happened, we were away. And so I want to review for you a little bit, especially if you have not been coming a couple of weeks, you haven't heard Second Peter yet. But I want to review where we have been and where we're going this evening. And tonight we're going to finish this first major division of this book. This book, I said from the very beginning, divides into four sections. The first section ends with the verse 15 in chapter 1, and it's all about the pursuit of the godly life. The second section begins in verse 16 and goes to the end of the chapter, and it's the power of the godly life or for the godly life. Then chapter 2 into chapter 3 verse 7 is all about the pattern of the ungodly. In other words, there's the antithesis that Peter presents for us as readers of what the opposite of godliness looks like. And then the end of the book, chapter 3, verses 8 through 18, is about the promises that you receive if you live the godly life. So the godly life is the overarching theme of this book. And you remember that Peter writes this book in the last couple months of his life, writing to Christians, most likely the same people that he wrote the first letter to. In other words, they are persecuted. They are in the diaspora. They have... Uh, been exiled from the city of Rome towards Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and they are living there, in some sense, as refugees, seeking asylum, seeking protection from the Neronian persecution. The emperor Nero started the first persecution against Christians that was instigated by Rome. Jewish persecution started pretty much right away in Acts chapter 4. But Nero is the first one to really go hard after Christians directly. And so now they're suffering and Peter writes this book to encourage them and to say, even if you're suffering, you should still pursue the godly life. And the first part of that was in the opening verses where he talks about what does the pursuit of godliness looks like? Well, he wants to encourage us to pursue that by saying there is the promise for godliness. Verse 3 says, you have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, you're lacking nothing to live a godly life. Whatever God could give you for you to be godly, he has given you. So if there's any ungodliness in your life, it's not because God is withholding some power from you, some secret from you for you to be able to live the godly life. You lack nothing to be godly. And that is reflected in the power for the godly life. And that is also in verse 3. It says, he's giving us this ability through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. In other words, the knowledge of Jesus Christ is that conduit into the power that we have to live the godly life. You cannot live the godly life apart from an ongoing investment into your knowledge of Jesus Christ. The power that we gain and understand is reflected at the end of this chapter, and that is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's a power that has allowed him to be transfigured and, and show a preview to Peter, James, and John about what he would be like in eternity. Well, as we pursue godliness, we have the power, we have the ability, and specifically the promise that it can be done because everything that we need has been given to us. But now we're in the process. Verse 4 says that godliness doesn't happen instantly. For the rest of our lives, we are engaged in transformation. We are being changed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. That's Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 3.18. They were constantly being transformed as we escape corruption. That's verse four. And we have the nature of God within us. We have become partakers, verse four says, of the divine nature. First John 3, 9 says that we have the seed of God within us. So God completely changed us. Our pastor spoke about this in Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, that we are completely new individuals. But, to succeed in the pursuit of godliness. It demands perseverance. And that's our next subsection. It demands perseverance. And so from verses 5 all the way down to verse 11, Peter was talking about what does that look like for you to persevere in pursuit of godliness. And so he says in verse 5, and then repeats it in verse 10, that we are to apply all diligence. Verse 10, be more diligent. 
In other words, it'll take effort. It's not going to happen automatically. It's not going to happen by just reading your one psalm a day, one proverb a day, and closing your Bible, praying for three seconds, hoping that in that instant you will be godly and you'll be holy. No, it will require diligence. And the demonstration of that godliness is in verses 5 through 8. That's your character. So we make a commitment to be diligent in our pursuit of godliness, but then the reflection of that is in the character that is developed. And so in verse 5, he starts by saying, we are to pursue excellence. We supply moral excellence. He uses the same exact terminology in our pursuit of moral excellence with which he describes Jesus back in verse 3. He is excellent. He is glorious. In other words, the standard for godliness isn't the holiest person that you know. It's not the oldest Christian that you know. It's Jesus Christ himself. That's the standard of excellence that we're to pursue because of the terminology that Peter strategically uses by trying to link us with him between verse 3 and verse 5. And that is done, again, according to knowledge in verse 5. So we invest into knowing Christ more and more. It's a personal knowledge. He repeats in verse 8, through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when he ends this epistle in chapter 3, verse 18, he commands, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, knowledge of Jesus is key to progress in godliness. The opposite of that is to be ignorant. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he said that now as Christians, we are to be obedient children who are not conformed to our former lusts, which were ours in ignorance. So in other words, ignorance and a life of lust go hand in hand. In chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Peter, Peter talks about the false prophets, false teachers, And it says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So on one end, you have people who are pursuing the knowledge of Jesus Christ and godliness. On the other hand, in chapter 2, you have people who are introducing destructive heresies and denying the master and pursuing lusts. And we'll talk about that when we get into chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So those two can't go hand in hand. You either pursuing Christ and thereby gain godliness, or you are avoiding the knowledge of Christ, and your life will reflect that in unbridled corruption and a life of lust. So then he introduces the next element, and that is self-control. In verse 6, you exert self-control in your life. Again, the opposite of that is those who are false teachers who do not have self-control. In verse 3 of chapter 2, he says their destruction is not asleep. It's coming at them. It's not slow. It's coming towards them because of their unruly lusts. And then he says in verse 6, perseverance. That is the next element that reflects our godliness. That means that even in the worst moment of temptation, when there's an onslaught against us from the world to not be godly, we endure, we persevere, we maintain a pursuit of godliness. We do not give in. So no no, no amount of duress can cause us not to be godly. Nothing will deter you from being Godlike, And so in verse 6, he introduces our key word, godliness, which simply means you live a life that is like God. So when you enter a room, you bring in a, the character of God with you. People sense that there's something different about you, that you are truly reflecting the character of God. And we said you radiate godliness when you enter the room. We do so not only because there are blessings, but because the opposite of that kind of life ultimately leads to destruction. Verse 9 of chapter 2 says, those who are unrighteous, those who are ungodly, the punishment awaits them and they're waiting for the day of judgment. In chapter 3 verse 7, it says, by his word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment for destruction of ungodly man. 
So now this judgment coming upon the ungodly, therefore we pursue the opposite. We pursue godliness to avoid judgment. And the greatest manifestation of our godliness is reflected in verse 7, brotherly kindness and love. Jesus said, by your love for one another, they will know that you're my disciples in John chapter 13. So how we treat one another demonstrates to the people that are watching, both believers and unbelievers, whether we're actually God's whether the seed of God is within us, whether we have the nature of God within us, whether we're truly pursuing godliness, how we treat one another reflects our new nature. If all that is yours, if this is what you're pursuing, then 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11, is your future. And this is what he says. Your calling, your choosing will be yours. And you will never stumble. And verse 11, for in this way, in other words, by living out this kind of life, by pursuing godliness diligently in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So that's the confidence that we can gain from following Christ and for pursuing a life of godliness that we're ultimately going to make it to heaven. The proof of your salvation, which ultimately goes to the doctrine of assurance. You can know that you are a Christian today. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to spend time daily thinking, am I truly going to heaven? No, he says you can know that the eternal kingdom of our Lord will be abundantly supplied to you if this is the kind of life that you live. And that takes us to our third key division here. It's the confidence that we gain. The confidence from living a life of virtue. What's interesting with Peter in this little segment is what he does in verse eight. He says, if these qualities are yours, if these qualities are yours, there's a difference in the Greek language between one word that means becoming something versus actually being something. So grammatically, it's a verb of being, Versus a stative verb, okay? If you guys know your English grammar. He's using a verb that talks about being. It's who you are. Now, this is your new nature. That's the radical transformation that has happened in your life. But he says if they are increasing, in other words, because you are new as an individual, as a new spiritual being, you're a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, now you're living a life that continually reflects that newness in your salvation, But an example of this distinction between being versus becoming is in Philippians chapter 2. Go ahead and go to Philippians chapter 2 for just a second because it's clearly reflected here in Christ. So Philippians 2 is all about pursuing humility and unity. But as a way to encourage humility and unity in the Philippian church, Paul decides to use Jesus as an example of humility. And so in verse 6, he says this about Jesus Christ, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taken on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. So, although he existed, that's the same word that we have in 2 Peter. So you have, you exist, that's your being, these qualities. That's your being. Just as Jesus is God, he existed as God. But then, verse 7, he became a man. Do you see the distinction? That is extremely important for our theology of Christ, Christology. That Jesus was always God. He is God and always will be God. But there was an incarnation that took place. And that is becoming, right? He took on a human form temporarily. Well, he was on this earth to accomplish his purposes. And then that 30 to 33 year period, he died, he resurrected. We're going to celebrate that in a couple of weeks. But ultimately that body came out of the grave. It was glorified and that is the body he'll have forever. But I want you to see the distinction because in Peter's section, that's what he uses that unique word that says, these are yours. That's who you are. Now, demonstrate it, prove it 
by, verse 8, increasing in these virtues. What he says with that part is there's no place for regress in the Christian life. There's no opportunity for stagnation. You're always increasing. You're always moving forward. You're always abounding, in other words. Your life is an aromatic bouquet of virtues, of godliness. And because of that, four results flow from it in verses 9 and 10. You know Christ. We talked about this. You're separated from sin. That's verse 9. You're stable in your faith. That's verse 10. You will never stumble. And Peter wants to help you understand how certain you can be about your calling and your choosing in the middle of verse 10. Be more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. Take a look at verse 19. He says this, we have the prophetic word made more sure. It's the same word. Sadly, it's a different translation in the English, but it's exactly the same word. So what he's trying to say is this. We'll get to this in a few weeks, but verses 16 and 19 is all about the reliability of the word of God. Can you trust the word of God? What about trusting the word of God versus your experience? That's what 16 through 21 is all about. And he says we have the more sure or the more reliable or the more certain word of God when compared with your experience. So you always submit your experience in life to the word of God. That's what he's trying to say here. So as confident as we are that the word of God is God's word, it is true, it is reliable, it is pure, it is perfect. There are no errors in it. You can find all those statements all over the book of Psalms. As much confidence as you have as a Christian in the word of God, that you base your entire life on that. By using the same word only here and nowhere else. What Peter is doing in verse 10, it says this, you can be as sure about your salvation, about your election, about your calling as you are about the certainty and the truthfulness of the word of God. Do you guys see that? Because I know that once in a while we doubt our salvation. And we ask questions, where's the proof of my salvation? And so different people will give you different advice on how to be sure that you are a Christian. And ultimately, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the love and obedience is all part of that. And that's a different sermon. But what I'm trying to point out here is Peter very carefully takes the same exact very rare word in the New Testament, uses it only twice in both of his letters, to say, let me give you a comparison of the certainty with which I'm promising you can have for your salvation. It's as certain, you can be as certain about your salvation as you are about the word of God. That's what he's trying to tell us. And that's huge because that means you don't have to wonder if you're going to heaven. But it doesn't happen magically. It happens when we live the life of verses 5 through 8. That's what Peter is trying to communicate to us. And then the end result, verse 11, richly supplied will be to you the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. You will get to heaven. In Luke 12, 32, it says, your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. It's God's joy to give you the entire kingdom, to be with him. It's his joy. It's not just him being held accountable to the promise that he made. No, he's happy to give you the kingdom. And now he says, you can be sure you can get there as long as you live a life of godliness. And so because of all that, Peter says in verse 12, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. This is our passage for this evening, verses 12 to 15 is that Peter says, this is what we've been talking about so far. You can know for sure that you're a Christian. You can know that you're going to heaven, that you're elect, that you're chosen by God. As long as you pursue godness and that is reflected in your life. 
And so in order for you to have that certainty, no matter what happens in your life, whether you are in exile as they were, or you're living abundantly as some of you are today, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are in life. You can have that confidence as long as this is true of you. And Peter says, and I will always be ready to remind you of these things. He makes a commitment. He puts the word always at the very beginning. Always. I'm going to keep reminding you of these things. It's a lifelong commitment. I mentioned to you at the beginning of the study months ago that Peter and Paul were in prison together at the end of their life. Probably, and I'm convinced of this personally, Paul wrote 2 Timothy while Peter was writing 2 Peter. Because tradition tells us that they were executed about the same time. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was decapitated about the same time. So it seems that they probably wrote their final testaments, their final letters about the same time, maybe a couple months apart. Peter died first and Paul later. We know that from 2 Timothy 4.11 when he says, only Luke is with me. In other words, Peter's now gone, executed, so now he's just with Luke. But the other proof of this kind of a joint effort, one writing to Timothy, one writing to the church, the former church in Rome, now in exile, is the overlap in the theme of godliness and reminding the people that you love about godliness. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 precedes the verse that you know really well. All scripture is inspired by God. That's 16 and 17. But two verses before that, this is what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, continue in the things in which you learned. That's a reminder statement. Continue in the things in which you learned and became convinced of knowing from whom you learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, he says, Timothy, remember where your truth and your commitment to truth came from. Since you were a child, you've known the scriptures that can bring you to salvation. Remember that. And in addition to the 15 references to godliness in 1 Timothy, Paul adds more. 2 Timothy 4, 7, this is what he says. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then for the next three verses, he explains what that looks like. 2 Timothy 2, 2, you lead a quiet life in all godliness. 2 Timothy 6, 11. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6, 11. Pursue godliness. So he's trying to infuse the same idea as his final words to the, peop- to the person that he loves, in this case, his protege, Timothy, that life needs to be characterized by godliness. That's exactly where Peter finds himself. He's encouraging the people that he loves and he reminds them to pursue godliness. And so Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.16, avoid godless and empty chatter. It'll lead to further ungodliness. 3.5, holding, there are people who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. Verse 12 of chapter 3, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So now get this, there are people who hold to a form of godliness. Seven verses later, indeed all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. So if you're truly living a life of godliness, it solicits hostility. It solicits opposition for your faith. And both of them are in prison as Paul writes that statement. And they both say, we're going to keep reminding you of these things. This is something that you might be prompted to forget. In God's providence, Matt preached last week on Psalm 103, the danger of forgetting. What a perfect compliment to this evening's paragraph. And so to set our focus In the right place, let me read for us verses 12 through 15. Everything before this was not part of the sermon. Now the sermon begins. Verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Even though you already know them. And you've been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will be more diligent at any time after my departure that you will be able to call these things to mind. Those are his final words in this first major section in the book. 
He wants to make sure that we remember and he's committing to reminding us of the importance of godliness. And then if you look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, towards the end of the book, he says something very similar. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. This is how you know he wrote this letter, not somebody else, because he has First Peter behind it. Second letter I'm writing in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words of spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So at the beginning of chapter of the book and at the end of the book, Peter says, this book is a reminder. I want to make sure you never forget these truths. If you think about the Old Testament, there are episodes in the Old Testament where certain stones were set up as reminders. Remember some of that? In Genesis chapter 28, verse 11, for example, Jacob stops at the city of Luz. He sleeps. God has a vision, appears to him in a vision, and God reminds him of the Abrahamic covenant. And in the morning, Jacob renames that city from Luz to Bethel, the house of God. That's Genesis 28. There's a few more places in Genesis 31, 35. Similar things take place, and there's a memorial set up. In Joshua chapter 4, after the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, as God promised them, what happens? They set up how many stones? Twelve. Twelve stones as a memorial of God's faithfulness. You get to 1 Samuel chapter 7, in verse 12, the Israelites defeat the Philistines. And Samuel leads the group of the Israelites into a place of saying, no, we need to set up a stone, a memorial. And guess what they do? They set up the Ebenezer. We know that word. This far God has helped me. So there's this element in the Old Testament where constantly God wants to use these symbols to remember, for his people to remember what he has done for them. Take a look at Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 is one of the most famous Old Testament passages. It's called the Shema, which comes from the first word in verse 4. And many of you have probably memorized this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You will bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You will write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. And it will come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill and to hew cisterns which you did not dig, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and you're satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God. You will worship him and swear by his name. The reason that the Israelites had to do all that, the frontals and the scripture all over the place, it's a reminder of who God is and what God had done for them. The Bible is filled with reminders. If you go by the fountain, there's a little plaque. It's a memorial. We got that idea for that plaque from those passages. And our pastor chose Psalm 91, verses 14 through 16, as a way to remember God's faithfulness to this church in the season of COVID, when we were in the lawsuit with the state and the governor and the LA County and the mayor and the health department. And this is what that verse says, Psalm 91 verses 14 and beyond. Because he loved me, therefore I will protect him. I will set him securely on high. Because he has known my name, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in his distress. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. That's why that plaque is there in case you ever stumbled because of it. 
It's a reminder for us and however long God allows this church to be here and function and operate and be a light for the gospel, it's a reminder that in 2020 and 21, God protected us and led us. Like many other passages in the Old Testament, Peter picks up that idea. You need to be reminded. Because statistics indicate that a day after you've learned something, you forget 56%. I'm sorry, 56% of what you've learned, you forget in an hour. Man, I feel bad about this whole hour. (laughs) 56%. Every other word you're not going to remember. 66% you forget after a day. 75 after a week. You forget three quarters of what you learned a week later. That's why we need reminders. That's why Peter says, I will not stop reminding you of these things. And so let me organize our thoughts around three reasons for reminders. Three reasons for reminders. First of all, because of the stability in the truth. He says this at the very beginning. The end of verse 12, you have been established in the truth that is present within you. It's a truth that has kept you secure and established. He's alluding back to the last chapter of 1 Peter and verse 10. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Same terminology. So now he picks up on that and says, you are stable. And God promises to keep you stable. And you're stable in verse 12, in the truth. No matter what happens, you will be stable. But Peter picks up this vocabulary from Jesus. Because in Luke 22, verse 32, Jesus tells Peter. And Peter would not have forgotten this lesson. Because it was that catastrophic on his personal spiritual life. He says this to Peter right before his own crucifixion. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed earnestly for you that your faith would not fail. And you, once you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Same word. The same idea. In other words, what Jesus was expecting from Peter after Satan's aggressive attack which was temporarily successful. He says, after you've gone through that trial and you come out successful, ultimately this is a positive statement, right? You will come back, he says. Your responsibility is to make sure that the people around you are stable. The same vocabulary. And now Peter took that charge and is now writing it in 2 Peter and in 1 Peter. Now, that idea of stability is best illustrated with Jesus' own resolve, where he uses the same exact word to describe himself in regards to his commitment, his stability, his determination to go to the cross. Because in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, Now it happened that when the days for him to be taken up were soon to be fulfilled, he set his face, he became established. He became firm. He became resolved. The same exact word. To go to Jerusalem. How resolved? Verse uh, John 12, 27. Jesus says, my soul has become dismayed. And what will I say? Father, save me from this hour. In other words, Jesus says, my soul is in turmoil. So one option is to say, Father, I don't want to do this. Save me from this hour. But then he says this, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. In other words, he goes back and says, what is my purpose for coming? Ultimately, it is for the cross. So I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to deny and be undetermined in some way and deviate from the plan. That's the model of stability that Peter has and we have. That kind of resolve, that kind of determination in the truth as Jesus was determined to go to the cross because he understood what it would accomplish. The opposite of stability is in chapter 2, verse 14 of 2 Peter. The false teachers having eyes full of adultery 
that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. So now he gives us an example of what instability looks like. They're the ones who fall for false teaching, adultery, greed, verse 14. In chapter 3, verse 16, the false teachers, it says, they're the ones who are the untaught and the unstable. And they distort the scriptures. So the godless, the false teachers are described in 2 Peter as unstable. And so in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard so that you are not carried away by error of unprincipled men and fall from your own stability, your own steadfastness. Do you see that, the importance of stability in the truth? You're either stable or you are falling for the unprincipled man, their lusts, their greed, their corruption. And he says in verse 12, back in chapter 1, verse 12, you know this and you are stable in the truth that is within you. The truth is within you. And in order to show this in the New Testament, what the author of Acts, Luke, does is he says, the importance of stabilizing the Christian in his or her walk is proven by what Peter, uh, what Paul did and his associates as they traveled from city to city to city to city, stabilizing the faith of Christians. Chapter 14 talks about him going to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Chapter 15 talks about him going to Antioch a year later after chapter 14. Chapter 15 says he went to Syria and Cilicia. Chapter 18 says they went to Galatia and Phrygia. Romans says they went to Rome, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, they went to Thessalonica. And then James 5 talks about them going to the diaspora all over the Roman Empire with the same goal, stabilizing the faith of the Christians. That's the importance to us to remember and be stable that the apostles committed their ministry lives to stabilize the faith of the believers. And this kind of stability can endure until the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. This is what Paul says to the Thessalonians. So that he may establish you or stabilize your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So Paul is saying it's possible to have that kind of stability all the way until the coming of Jesus Christ. At which point you will be changed fully and you will be blameless and fully holy. So Peter's expectation is I'm going to keep reminding you of these things so that you are stable in your faith or in the truth that you know. But the second reason for the reminder is the brevity of life. The brevity of life. Three times Peter refers to his imminent death. Verse 13 He says, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. Verse 15, in the middle of the verse, at any time after my departure. So in three three times, Peter says, I'm going to die soon. And he says in verse 14, the Lord Jesus revealed that to me. It's really unclear whether it goes back to John 21. When Jesus tells Peter after he restores him to ministry, he says, when you're older, you will be tied up and you'll be taken to a place where you do not wish to go and ultimately you will die. It could be that reference that he's thinking about. Some say it could be another prophecy that he received between John 21 and 2 Peter 1. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. All that matters is that he knew that he would die. And in light of that reality, the brevity of life, And his looming death, he said, I'm going to keep reminding you. And in verse 13, he says, it is right. It's the right thing to do for me to keep encouraging you. But here's where it gets interesting. Peter uses an interesting word to refer to his body, earthly tent. That's the literal translation, earthly tent. He repeats it again in verse 14. There's only two other places in the New Testament where the body is described as a tent. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and 
dwelt among us, but the idea is it was a tent that tabernacled with us. It's a verb, so it's different, but it's the same idea. Now, the strategy behind John using that word in John 1.14 was to demonstrate to us that in the Old Testament, God's presence was with his people through the tabernacle. Remember that? Now he takes that word tabernacle and applies it to Jesus and says, you want to know what happened to God's presence in the Old Testament that used to indwell the tabernacle? It's now with Jesus. Now Jesus is the New Testament, you could say, version of the tabernacle. That's why he uses the same exact word to make that connection. It's a theological, symbolic connection. The only other place in the New Testament where earthly dwelling or tent is used, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There, Paul describes his deteriorating body. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 4, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, and so on. In other words, Paul and Peter are using the language of a tent to describe their body. It's a body that's deteriorating. It's a body that is temporary. How many of you have ever gone camping? All right, good. We're kind of planning a camping trip for our Bible study. So if Diego actually does his job, we'll get there. (laughs) Public accountability, all right? Everybody knows. If it doesn't happen, it's not my fault. Is it happening? It's in the works, all right. It's like half promise. It's, it, it might happen. If you've gone camping, and especially if you've been in a tent, you know that it's exciting and fun when you're a kid. But when you're older, the tents aren't the most comfortable places to sleep in, right? So how many of you like sleeping in a tent today still as adults? All right, there's less hands. I promise you that. There's a lot less hands. I remember going to a mission strip in Mexico. Yeah, my... Uh, I think it was my first year in college. And uh, we had to sleep in tents for a week in Ensenada and doing a VBS and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I was selfish. So I said, I'm going to sleep on the edge of the tent because, you know, you don't have to sleep between two guys in a tent. So you get the kind of the corner side. So I said, I'm in. So fine, I got it. Well, guess what happened that night? It poured badly. My entire sleeping bag was completely soaked. So for the rest of the week, I slept in this wet sleeping bag. On top of that, I think they put our tent right next to a pig farm because the entire night we heard shrieks and killing and murder of little piglets. (laughs) It was the worst. I still remember the, 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 the screaming in my head many years later. But tenting isn't most fun. Now, I enjoy it. Our family goes camping every single year in July, and it's fun. But it's not the most convenient, and it's certainly temporary, right? If there's anything that's true about a tent, it's temporary. You can fold it up, put it in a bag, and take it home. That's what Peter and Paul mean by when they use that word. We have a temporary body. It's falling apart. It's getting old. It's got defects. It's moving towards ultimate death. And destruction. And so when he says this, that's what he means. Look, as long as I'm alive in this earthly tent, I'm going to keep reminding you of these truths that you need to remember in order to live a godly life. And he says that because he understands the importance, how important it is to be reminded. And so in verse 13, he says, I consider right to stir you up by way of reminder. Now he gets more aggressive. He uses a word that actually means to wake somebody up, up from sleep. It refers to Jesus being awakened by his disciples when there's a storm on the Sea of Galilee and they're panicking for their lives and they wake him up and he calms the storm. In John 6, it refers to the howling of the wind and the roaring sea. It's so alive. It's so active. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to keep you awake. I'm going to keep you alive and thinking about the things that you should be thinking about. Because we can become lethargic. We can become lazy and forgetful. Indifferent. Apathetic. 
to what we're supposed to be doing as Christians in our pursuit of godliness. And so Peter says, it's the right thing for me to do to wake you up in your spiritual life and to remind you of what is important. And so in verse 15, he says, I will be diligent. The same word that he used back in chapter, in verse 5, applying all diligence in your pursuit of godliness. In verse 10, be all the more diligent. And now he says, as much diligence as I'm demanding of you in pursuit of godliness, I'm going to apply that same amount of diligence in my commitment to help you and remind you to pursue godliness and to pursue the virtuous life. That's the commitment he makes to his readers. And at the end of chapter 3, he says, Now you be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. Going back to the same idea that we need to have an aggressive pursuit of holiness. So if you desire to enter heaven, verse 11, the kingdom of God, if you want, verse 13 of chapter 3, to be in the new heavens and the new earth, then you need to be diligent to pursue godliness. And I will commit to reminding you of that truth. The application of that is Peter's gone, but you're alive and I'm alive. This is where the corporate community comes into the picture. Are you committed to helping each other, reminding each other to pursue godliness? That's what he's ultimately after. Not in some law enforcement way, being legalistic about everything. But in a way that you say, I'm moving towards godliness and I'd like to help the people in my church, in my Bible study, to also pursue godliness. To also make sure that they have assurance about their calling and their choosing. To also make sure that they never stumble, verse 10. To also make sure that they know that they will enter the eternal kingdom of our Lord. Those are the end results of pursuing godliness. So are you committed to helping people have that assurance and reminding them of the things that you know and they know, but we all become forgetful. And so Peter says, this is the right thing to do, to remind each other to be faithful and to increase in these virtues. How long? Until eternity, which takes us to our final point for this evening. The third reason to remind ourselves, to be reminded, is because of the hope of eternity. In verse 15, he says, after my departure. After my departure. He could have said after my death. There's a totally different word. It's a pretty common Greek word to talk about death. It's the same word that means perfect, mature. For you Greek individuals, it's teleon. That's the word, death. It's finished. When Jesus was on the cross and he says, it is finished, that's the word he used, cognate of that word. Peter, for whatever reason, uses a word that only appears one other time in the New Testament. And he uses the word exodus. My exodus. Guess where it's also used. Good guess, but no, not in Exodus. <laughs> Though it's the same word. In Luke chapter 9. Go there. I think you'll be interested to see why Peter chose a word that appears only one other time in the entire New Testament and where it appears and what that helps us to understand about Second Peter. Luke 9, 27. Jesus says, I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Some eight days later, he took along Peter, James, and John and went up into the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. 
His clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents. We saw that word already in First Peter. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. At least he didn't want a tent for himself. There's some humility there. Not understanding what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out from the cloud and said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, Peter compares the word of God to the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. In the passage that's right before tonight's passage, he uses the same vocabulary to refer to his own departure, his exodus, and the tents that he wanted to build. Why? Because the transfiguration was a preview of glory. And it is good to be in glory. So his request was logical, rational, right. Hey, I want to stay here forever. And you guys have some, you know, cover from the rain and stuff. I'm happy to be outside. I just want to be here in this preview of eternal glory. Now, Jesus is speaking about with Elijah and Moses about his exodus in Jerusalem. And then his glory is revealed in verse 32. So here's what's happening here between Peter and Jesus. Jesus, according to John 12, 23, was glorified through the crucifixion, through the exodus, through his death. It's a, ultimately the final step of that is in eternity when he rules the new world, the new heaven and the new earth, when he's the king of kings and lord of lords. But a preview of that happened in Luke chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, 17, and in Mark chapter 9, the same exact uh, event. The reason that Luke and Peter use the word exodus, not only because it's an allusion back to the Old Testament and the exodus, but because outside the New Testament, this word was used to refer to a transition from this life to the next. And it, has, it had to do with continuing to live beyond your death. There was that meaning in, meaning in Second Temple Jewish writings. And so Luke and Peter pick that up and say, this is not the end. It wasn't the end for Jesus. The cross wasn't the end for Jesus. It was just a passage, a pathway, a, a conduit, a hallway into glory. This is not the end for me. Yes, I will die, but it's not the end. Glory awaits me. And if you think back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 and verse 14, then again at the end of 1 Peter, he keeps talking about the hope of the future glory. You have been born again to a future hope. Then we defend this hope, chapter 3 verse 15, to the people that ask us about it. So what drives Peter's theology is the hope of the future glory, both Jesus's and ours. And now he takes a word and says, let me give you some reinforcement in your mind on how to understand this and how to connect it to Jesus' own experience that I had with him, verses 16 through 19 of Second Peter 1, where I saw a preview of that glory. That's the exodus that I'm thinking about. And when I die, I'm exiting from here to there. In light of that definite event, for everybody, remember what kind of life you're supposed to live. That the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will be supplied to you only if you live a godly life. If you have this hope, chapter 3, verse 14, to be in the new heaven and the new earth, then be diligent to be found by him blameless, spotless. That's the end of Second Peter. That's how he's connecting all this for us. And to say death is not the end. It's an exodus from this life to the next. And no one understood that better than Jonathan Edwards. 
Jonathan Edwards was an 18-year-old teen when he began to write down his 70 resolutions. To this day, he's considered to be one of the greatest minds America has produced. We remember him, those of you who know a little bit about Jonathan Edwards, as the pastor who led the Great Awakening in New England in the 1700s. You remember him as possibly the one who wrote Religious Affections, the end for which God created the world, a treatise on charity and its fruits, or Life of David Brainerd, or Freedom of the Will. And there's tons of sermons and tons of other theological treatises that you can find online for free. Lots and lots and lots of publications he left behind. He was 12 when he entered Yale and was done as the valedictorian by the time he turned 17. And in order to get into Yale, you had to be fluent in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, and certainly English. That's the kind of person we're talking about. But in August of 1722, he was 18. He just graduated from Yale, and he was kind of lost. So he gets called to a church in New York City, to a small little church that just went to a church split. And he becomes their pastor. And he doesn't know how to pastor. His grandpa is a pastor. His father is a pastor. Many relatives around him are pastors. But he's only 18 in the New York City all alone. Everybody else is in Connecticut. And so he decides to write the resolutions. It takes him about a year to write all 70. And listen to what he wrote. I'm just going to give you a sample of some of them on the screen. This is not a resolution, but he writes this elsewhere. God stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Resolution number six says, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Nine, resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. 19, resolved never to do anything which I should, which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. 22, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence, I'm capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. 52, I frequently resolved that I frequently hear persons in all age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I would live just as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. How do you live a life with that kind of resolve? A life that ultimately allowed him to accomplish all that he accomplished after he wrote these resolutions, not before. Because he lived according to number 55. Resolved to endeavor to my utmost. To act as I can think I should do. If I had already seen the happiness of heaven. And the torments of hell. That's the third point for this evening. It's the eternal hope of heaven. That drives us in this life. And before the first resolution. This is what he wrote. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. Even Jonathan Edwards needed to be reminded. And so do we. And that's Peter's message. Remind yourself and remind others to live a godly life. Let's pray. Lord God, you have saved us. You've cleansed us. You've changed us. You've transformed us. You introduced us to the gospel and we believed it. We brought our sins to you. We confessed them. We turned away from them. We've been forgiven. And now we live a life for you. A godly life. 
And our desire is to never waver, to never regress, to never stagnate, to never become lethargic. And we will do that by being reminded of these things. I pray for our Bible study that we would never forget your expectation of each of us, that we would remember what it takes to live a godly life. And through that life, we would be certain that we're headed towards the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are here this evening who may not be yours, I ask that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes and he would show them the truth of the gospel and the beauty of heaven and the beauty of Christ and the beauty of godliness and the filth of sin and corruption and lust and greed and perversion and that they would turn away and follow you in repentance, seeking to live a life that is honoring to you. We need your Holy Spirit to sustain us in this endeavor. So I pray that we would always be mindful in submitting to the Spirit as we diligently pursue godliness to the honor of your name. Amen.